0: I had a nightmare the other week I was trapped on a seastead colony and I couldn't escape and then when I thought i got caught they were just zombies they weren't actually people and they just hunted me and mm-hmm. so i had to escape from so i was trapped on a seastead terrified that i was going to get shot by libertarians saw no libertarians saw zombies ran away into the water and then thought i was safe and then they came at me with some watercraft and then i woke up
1: so <laughs> i didn't get <laughs> Damn, man. You got the wildest dreams. <laughs> I do. I have. A, you should see the dream drill. Hey, you, you dream, drill dream in TMK. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Ed, you're not the
2: only one that's getting those weird ass dreams, man. Tell me about I mean, Jeremy, you, I mean, you smoking on some shit sometimes. <laughs> I, mean, like, I mean, gives you the most insane dreams. <laughs> you, oh, my God. Uh, oh, <laughs>
0: sometimes dude. you describe to me the, the, like, you know, you come on. We're talking. You'll be like, I'm high. And this is how I got high and i'm just like i'm doing the math in my head <laughs> and i'm scared because I'm, <laughs> i imagine i'm like if i went to sleep on that yeah. i think when i woke up i'd have a hard time but i would have a hard time like sometimes when i have really intense dreams the first 10-15 minutes i'm like whoa what i don't yeah. you know it doesn't register you're here yeah. that, but no tell me about your dreams i want to hear about these oh man
2: well i mean first <laughs> and foremost i come from pretty hardy stock so it takes a lot for me to like, you know get really just like bonanza, Mm -hmm. you know, if if I'm going to drink, it's, it's like a whole day and afternoon affair, but the, you know, the getting high and having weird dreams thing, man, it it just comes from like, just the choice of things that I guess I read before I go to bed. Like Mm. back when I used to read a lot of science fiction, fortunately I haven't really been reading a lot of science fiction lately. I've been reading shit so I can, be able to contribute to conversations on this podcast without sounding like a fucking idiot. You don't <laughs> sound like a fucking idiot ever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm, I try to keep up with the the same shit you guys read, but it's man, that shit has given me even weird dreams. Like mm, it's mm-hmm, like mm. I go from like, I'm going from like hard, like hard sci-fi dreams. to like uh bureaucratical pr- procedure, science fiction dreams. And those mm. are fucking, those are nightmarish. Like, You know, people like throwing percentages and numbers. I'm like, you know, my brain last night was like, the world has 12.6 years to get its shit together. We're all fucked. And that's what I woke up to in my brain this morning when I went up to get up to do the bathroom. So, of course, all morning today, I'm like, man, I'm not even going to be 53 and the world's going to shit itself. And I started (laughs) thinking about all the people that are a lot younger than me. And I'm like, well, shit, at least I got to be on the earth for 53 years.
1: (laughs) whereas I had a dream the other night that I was hanging out with Big Sean I don't even listen to Big Sean I don't know why (laughs) but I woke up being like oh yeah me and Big Sean are friends and then I had and then I had to like really wake up and be like no, we're not. <laughs> I mean, sometimes
2: it happens, man. I mean, I had a dream I was kicking it with Ludacris, and that was a, that was a pretty fun time. I mean, granted, that was like 2004, so that was like 2004 Ludacris. <laughs>
1: Hello, comrades. It's episode 95 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And, boys, I'm on, I'm on cloud nine. I'm, 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 I'm walking on sunshine right now. I'm, I'm floored. I'm floored. I, I got... Look, there, there's... All I got to say is the insurance industry better fucking watch out. Cause I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming for y'all. <laughs> I got a, 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 big grant. I mean, it feels so weird to say this, like, you know, to like, like talk about, talk about yourself and talk about this talk about it like this. But, um, yeah, I want, I, I, I thought what we would do, what we decided to do for the beginning of this episode is, is walk through, uh, the, this like big, I just got like a big grant to do a a, a multi-year, three-year project. On the political economy of the insure tech sector, insurance technology, and uh, I'm 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 super psyched. I'm super psyched to like be digging deeper into all this shit, uh, to have the resources and, and support needed to do it. Um, be bringing a bunch of this like uh, research and stuff I'll be doing over the next you know handful of years to to TMK, uh, you know, running some series on insurance technology. Uh, based on based on this work but yeah i mean i guess in in, in short uh I got what's called a, a a decra award it's a it's an acronym but it's a uh, early career researcher award um, from the Australian Research Council for a project looking at like i said the the political economy of the insure tech sector um, you know particularly focused on what I, uh, i've been calling everyday insurance tech so you know the the kind of insurance that i that that we all you know that we all use everyday or that we all need for everyday use you know so health automotive and property insurance and looking at the the way that new technologies ai data uh, personalization, you know, behavior modification stuff like that is increasingly being used by the insurance industry, both like big legacy incumbents, um, but also all these new startups. Like, you know, I'm sure people have heard of like Lemonade or Root, uh, you know, Zago. Like, there's just like this whole long list of these insure tech startups that have been getting big money valuations, right, to disrupt the insurance industry. But there's so little actual, like you know, hard empirical analysis into what are these companies actually doing? How are they using this technology, right? Um, and then that—that's what—that's what this 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 research grant I just got um, is going to allow me to start doing when I start the project next year. I'm psyched! I'm psyched! Can I say that? Can we say that, that I'm psyched? (laughs) (laughs) You are
0: allowed to say that, as you should be. This is going to be a good project. Do you have ideas about, like, you know, are there areas that you're going to be looking at that you wouldn't have been able to look at without this money?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, what what this research money is going to allow me to do is go beyond the desk, uh, you know, beyond just like poking around, reading coverage, reading the, the you know, the materials put out by these companies about what they're doing and, and you know, reading what the uh, Financial Times is reporting on it, right? Which is like, you know, that's where you, lo- that's, that's, you know, a lot of the, like, analysis is kind of, you know, filtered through those channels, right? But what this, what this money will allow me to do um, and like the big, like kind of, Bulk of the of the research is doing. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm looking at as ethnography of uh, these like trade shows and these industry conferences um, in the insurance industry in tech. So you know, basically flying around. You know, um, like the project is really focused on the uh, the sector's growth and development in Australia, but really trying to map these like global trends and themes and trajectories um, in the sector as well. So what this research money is going to allow me to do is start going to these industry conferences and these trade shows in Australia, but also in Europe and the US and just like hang around interviewing, you know, Investors, entrepreneurs, actuaries—you know, uh, engineers, right? Like all these people that are um, at this like confluence of the insurance industry and the tech industry, and all the capital, uh, all the investment, all the expertise, all the development, and you know, founders and stuff like that—and like really start you know, getting to know these people, interviewing them, understanding what they're doing from their own, from the horse's mouth, right? Rather than it just being like desk research kind of filtered through what reporting I can find, what marketing materials I can find, you know, all that stuff that we know, um, that we have to take with a grain of salt, right? We have to take that marketing uh, materials or these investor pitch decks with a grain of salt because they're trying to tell a story here. I'm I'm more interested in the story that they're not trying to tell the public, um, but the story they're telling each other. Right. Like, what are they saying in these like, you know, in these in these uh, industry conferences, in these trade shows, in these more like low key insider meetings? You know, what what are what are they saying? What do they think that they're doing? How are they talking about it amongst themselves rather than like just purely looking at what is the story that they're telling journalists or the public?
0: When you when you go to these trade shows, are you anticipating that they're going to? speak wildly different i mean we've seen that when we've done episodes on like trying to at least read some of like the stuff people say when they let their hair down it's usually it's not as um drunk with um like their own farts you know or huffing their own fumes right Mm. you know i'm curious like do you feel like there'll be a massive divergence from what they say in public and, and what they do when they let their hair down i know you've like before in your book and writing also like got a chance to look at what some of these places like in the smart city spaces like really think of their projects Beyond like marketing materials or the governments, but like internally. And also like we've talked about like what some of these companies, what some of these tech companies really believe, like when they get pressed in court, you know, when they have to give the deposition because the shit blew up, they're like, oh, oh, uh, we didn't mean that, (laughs) you
1: know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think so. I think so. Uh, And that is really what I want to do, right? Like I want to, I want, I want to go to these places where they feel more comfortable Talk, yeah, letting their hair down, right? Where they, where they can really say, like, here's what we're actually doing, here's what we want to do, here's what we think it's going to do, uh, you know, that kind of stuff as well. And, 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 you know, yeah, I've definitely seen this in my own work, like, you know, I did, like a multi-year ethnography of, of uh, it's called the future city unit in a, in a city in, in Australia, um, Parramatta, which is like part of the Sydney, uh, greater Sydney area where I was like, you know, really like day to day being in like these internal project meetings at city government, you know, talking to city planners and the vendors that they're working with. And you get a totally different story um, and a totally different understanding of these, like the politics and processes of the design and development of these of these products. Um, of uh, you get a different story of, like, you know, what is really driving, like, their motivations, their interests, their values. What are their goals, right? Um, beyond, like, yeah, just what they put out on a press release, right? Because that's a very Tailored story that they're telling you, right? I mean, you would you know this as a journalist too, right? It's like you even just start talking, you even get these people in like a one-on-one interview and you you get them feeling comfortable, and they're gonna start telling you stuff that, that they wouldn't put out in a press release, right?
0: Right. I mean, yeah, there's a whole channel for that with the on background bullshit. It's like, okay, we can just talk and you can provide context and not really get quoted. But yeah, no, definitely. I'm also curious if behind closed doors, these people anticipate some of like the, the risk or the social harms that come out of their projects, because it feels very much, most of the materials and even some of the inter-government, public and private sector communications, not just with the public, but with like you know government bureaucracies, they get downplayed or they invent solutions or suppress the evidence of it versus like outright saying, there'll never be any problems. We'll just say like, oh, that's not really something you should consider.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, uh, for, for sure, for sure. Uh, you know, I'm even thinking about like, you know, there's there's been, so, like, I, I just read this piece that came out in an academic journal called Social Studies of Science, but by uh, Chris Tennant and Jack Stilgo on looking at narratives of autonomy In the, you know, self-driving driverless vehicle industry. And this project that they did was they interviewed over 50 people intimately involved in the R&D processes of self-driving cars, of autonomous vehicles. And you learn so much more from that that kind of, uh, you know, actually talking to these people, building relationships with them, hanging out in their spaces on their turf, where they start feeling a bit more comfortable kind of, you know, with that water cooler chat, right? Like, like what do we really think about this? And that paper, uh, you know, showed that there was a lot of, um, internally, a lot of doubt, a lot of, you know, self-criticism about like, you know, uh, you know, these narratives of autonomy, like they, like, you know, the reality doesn't actually match up to the things that, you know, Elon Musk is saying or the PR people are saying. They have a much more like, in some regards, like a much more realistic, but also I think like there's like a more pervasive cynicism that you can find amongst the like rank and file People right who aren't like writing the press releases or who aren't like the face of the company, um, and and those are the people actually doing the the work in terms of like designing, developing, researching, deploying, implementing these technologies, and they have a much better understanding of what they can actually do. Like you know in the insure tech sector, I think of a company like Lemonade, right? Like you know Lemonade is is. I think the LAR has the biggest, it's a US based property insurance company um, or startup. And they they have like one of the biggest valuations of any insure tech in the world right now. You know, they're massive.
0: Jeremy said they're trying to ride Beyonce name recognition. And you know,
1: (laughs)
2: that's
1: right. Yeah. The SEO game is brutal. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's a weird name for an insure tech property company. But so, so Lemonade tweeted out a, a bunch, like a series, like a thread about how they were using facial recognition software, uh, to, you know, to, to automate, you know, claims and, and things like that, right? To, you know, as they were trying to say, right, like they were, they, they were using this uh, software to pick up on quote unquote nonverbal cues and um, claim videos to you know find indications of fraud, right? You know um, them
0: like race, sex, class.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the thing. They, they had to put their fucking tails between their legs and apologize for, as they put it, their. Awful tweets. You know it's bad when when you <laughs> have to call your own tweets awful. I'm sorry for of, posting.
0: I'm trying to delete yeah, the fuck.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's what they did. Um, because they immediately got a bunch of public backlash of people being like. Yeah, like, oh, so you're using AI to pick up on nonverbal cues for these claims videos. So what you thinking about race, class, gender, you know, stuff like that. And they had to put out a, 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 a like an apology being like, we have never and will never use phrenology or physiognomy to, <laughs> to process claims. And, and it's just like, like, yo, if you're in a position of having to deny phrenology, you already fucked up. You already my, fucked my we up. don't
0: do phrenology shirt is raising a lot of questions. <laughs>
2: There's an old stand-up Don Rickles who was kind of an insult comic like way back in the day, but he would have a line where he would wait for someone to do something like that, and his response would be, it looks like you've taken the right time to uh, make yourself look like a fucking idiot in public. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, something like lemonade, like if if you drink lemonade and it puts a bad taste in your mouth, folks, that you're not drinking lemonade, you're drinking piss
1: that's right that's right it was very funny though because like you know lemonade was talking about uh like a lot of the stuff that they were tweeting out you know it was new to the to the public who saw this and you know they became the kind of like main character of a certain segment of twitter for that day because Mm -hmm. of it and they were tweeting out you know stuff about their their like Uh, I forget what they call it. They call it like a flywheel of innovation or something, but it's like this circular diagram where it's like you know at the top is delight customers, then it goes grow fast, then predictive data, then machine learning, and then it goes back to delight customers. We love
0: we love loops where the snake eats its own tail. We Uh, love them. uh,
1: That's right, and that and and (laughs) was
0: yeah. That's that's actually what's going on. Eating their own asses and huffing their own farts.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, but what was very funny is like they were tweeting out this stuff that, and I had seen this before, right? In my research into these companies, I had seen all this before. What they accidentally did, well, they it wasn't. They realized it was an accident or a mistake after the fact. But what they did is they just tweeted out their investor pitch deck. Like, <laughs> like, and so it's, it's interesting to see how they made something public that was for, that was written for a different audience, right? This was written for like, you know, them going to VC firms and pitching their company to raise funding, right? And it's like, right. so that's the kind of bullshit that VCs would eat up, but then they throw it out in public and people are immediately like, I'm sorry, you doing, you're doing what? You're doing phrenology? Yeah, what? No, 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 no. It's different. It's a different skull. It's a different caliber, bro. Please
0: believe me. (laughs) Please believe me. (laughs) It's not the same thing. These aren't golden. They're digital. It's different.
1: Uh, So that's the kind of shit that I love to find out. And I'm really looking forward to finding out in this research where, you know, Go into these places where the audience is themselves and other people in the industry, not the public, right? Where it's not like like the lemonade fiasco. The, you know, lemonade. Yeah, they deleted their tweets and they apologized for for tweeting all you know for these awful tweets and stuff. But that doesn't mean they're gonna change what they're doing. That just means Fuck they're no. gonna be <laughs> no hell no. That means they're gonna be more circumspect about what they're doing, right? That, that means that they're going to be like, oh, okay, well, well we were too transparent. <laughs> we, we fucked up. We told the public what we actually thought. <laughs>
0: yeah. First thing first, we are getting a PR person, a social media team. We're going to make sure we never, ever, ever tweet out the pitch decks ever fucking again. Never. Mm-hmm. You know, basic, those are those are some good basic ground rules. But yeah, like you said, I think like it will inculcate with them and probably other firms, like a reluctance to... Be upfront about their models and also like probably some internal blindness, right? Because now they're going to be, make sure to never invoke any sort of mention of phrenology or physiognomy, right? And so I feel like internally, that's also going to mean like discouraging people from raising the question, hey, is this phrenology? Mm
2: -hmm. Like,
0: Are we just measuring people's skulls? (laughs) And that's the non-visual cue. It's non-visual because, I mean, you're not supposed to see it. And so we're seeing it and then intu- intuiting things or interpreting things from it that don't actually bear out in reality, except in the relationship to how fucked up and unequal and discriminatory this world is. It's, 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 it's.
1: That's the kind of stuff I'm really looking forward to, like, digging into in, in this project and really understanding that. And also understanding, like, you know, Lemonade is a great uh, case study of this because they are such a, a big company and get a lot of attention and money for from the insured tech sector where they, you know, they claim to be using like you know artificial intelligence to do disruptive innovation in the insurance sector and blah 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 but at the end of the day what they've got is a is is two chatbots right like like that's what it is right that's what their ai is is it's two chatbots and it, it's it's not like this is meant to make the insurance uh process you know to disrupt it to make it radically different. On one hand, what it really is about is is cutting down on overhead costs for the company, right? You don't have to pay a bunch of claim agents, right? Because then you can just have a chat bot named AI Maya, uh, who who is like, oh, okay, like you know she, you know AI Maya, this chat bot is just like all like doing automatic processing of claims, and you know the more interesting question is not you know, oh, they're using AI. The more interesting question is, like, how are they automating processing of claims on one hand to cut down overhead costs, a.k.a. labor costs, right? They don't have to actually employ people to do this anymore Um, while marketing it as a frictionless, convenient service to their customers. Um, But are they really passing on those savings And then, like, what's the, what's the second, what's, yeah, what's the secondary effects of that, right? Like, like, I think it's fucking awesome that they tweeted out their pitch deck and the immediate backlash was not like, oh, you know, because five years ago it would be like, you know, people would be like, this is amazing, this is innovation, this is fucking awesome. But I think it's amazing that the immediate backlash was like, this is phrenology, this is physiognomy, (laughs) we all know AI is biased as hell, like. Like what what are you really doing here?
0: Yeah, maybe they can get like a chief phrenologist whose job is to make is to make sure nobody is thinking about phrenology or doing phrenology by doing phrenology. <laughs> digital phrenology, but it's not phrenology, it's affect recognition.
1: Exactly.
0: exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's the next step. That's that's.
1: And it, it, it makes me think of like like you know, lemonade tried to clarify that. Oh, what they were really doing is using facial recognition to ensure or to spot if the same person was making multiple claims under different identities. This right. also reeks to me. You know, they thought that was the they thought that was the good pivot, right? Yeah. They that, thought that,
0: yeah. <laughs> come on.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. No, no, no. Like, we were just spying on them a little bit. It wasn't
1: <laughs> yeah, no, we're just trying to cut down on fraud, you know. But what what that reminds me of is all the discourse in the '90s around welfare queens, right? Yeah. Like, like yeah. these people, you know, doing doing fraud on welfare, and you know, and and it's it's very interesting that they're repeating that same kind of discourse, but about doing fraud on insurance claims, right? And it's yeah. like,
0: it's like we were talking about with Chris, you know, in this country. Fantasies of control are racialized, right? I was doing this interview today with Nathan Tankus um, about inflation, and he was talking to me about the politics of pricing, politics of constructing indexes to track consumer prices, the politics of like you know what gets what what goods and services get put into a basket, how that basket is tracked, what group of consumers are being tracked by that. So that we can then make decisions about, you know, whether inflation is four percent or six percent or whatever the fuck. You talked about how, you know, the way in which inflation is talked about today, when it's not happening, you know, we need to get things back in control, we need to we need to, you know, get a handle on things, it is happening at the same time of all these other discourses about how oh crime is out of control. Oh, defunding the police, you know, the activists are out of control, the left's out of control, the democrats are out of control. Uh, similar to 1970s when there was actual inflation and the narratives there were oh crime is out of control the inner cities are out of control right the political opposition is out of control we need to rein everything back in coupled with the fact that like you know just to do control as we've talked about also in our surveillance capitalism episode control in this country requires that you manage populations that are exploited or certain sur- made surplus right and so that always almost always ends up being black and brown communities right or other you know people that are you know deemed disposable or exploitable or expendable they are the ones who I mean they're managed so that the system works sleekly for the rest of the people that are deemed worthy of like having the system organized around them but everyone else gets crushed and that's and that's what control every time I hear control it very much feels to me it's like you know we we need to we need to have facial recognition surveillance so that we can ensure that nobody's doing fraud. okay well what are the actual rates of fraud? I mean there's no discussion of that right I don't think mm. I remember you know what there ends up being is like there's this specter of a threat and so we're introducing our business model so that we can get rid of the specter whether or not it exists or not.
1: Exactly. Exactly. It it is a it is a specter. It's a boogeyman, right? It becomes an alibi or Mm -hmm. justification for doing all kinds of awful shit. Because at the end of the day, rooting out fraud takes you know rooting out some imagined boogeyman of fraud takes precedent over everything else, right? And it is very interesting to see. Uh, that discourse, you know, in the, the Clinton, you know, era welfare reform in the 90s, now being replicated in a different way for the insure, insure tech and the insurance industry, right? Like, it's the same shit. And I don't think it's a coincidence as well that, like, you know, both welfare and insurance, when they, you know, at their base, ought to operate as a form of. Of a collective endeavor, right? Welfare systems are about uh, ensuring that there's a that there's a safety net to catch people who you know might fall through the cracks of the economy, ensuring that there's a, a a floor that raises everybody up to a a same level. You know, it's so it's it's a collective endeavor. At the same time, insurance, the fundamentals of insurance is about risk pooling among a community, right? Where you You pay into a, uh, you know, a premium and you pull your risk with a bunch of other people. So if something bad happens to you, you're covered, right? You don't have to deal with the entire catastrophe all at once. This emphasis on fraud, but also this emphasis on personalization is really about demutualizing something that is fundamentally designed as a mutual inst- uh, an institution of mutualization, right? It's about making it hyper-personalized, uh, you know, under the name of convenience or under the name of fairness, right? Like, oh, you know, it's not fair that you're paying, uh, you know, a premium based on, on a risk assessment of your demographic. You should only be paying a premium based on a risk assessment of your life, right? Uh, but that, that undermines the entire institution of whether it's welfare uh, or uh, uh, insurance and makes it into a, a hyper-individualized endeavor rather than a social, collective, mutual endeavor.
2: It's like the episode we did with Astra Taylor Tells Us Anything is that a lot of these systems that are supposed to build to succeed, to help people are intentionally made so difficult that they don't complete that task. It's almost done in such a way where it feels like they don't, you know, they don't want you using things like that. I mean, you know, as recently as a couple of years ago, how difficult it was to go on the health exchange marketplace and find a new health provider in the United States, or uh, as recently as people trying to sign up for uh renter's assistance, you know, Making it nearly impossible, um, you know, having it available one day and making people wait outside and plus 100 degree weather, you know, 30 miles away from most, where most of these people live. It's, it's all set up in a way where they, present the op- they make it look like that it's a viable option or something like, you know, we're trying to take care of people, but make the steps you have to go through to be able to succeed with that as impossible as they possibly can.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, is designed to fail, right? These institutions are designed to fail. And that yeah, I mean, great pool with our interview with Astra Taylor. You know, also thinking about things here as well. You know, the the there was a the FT, just by sheer coincidence, ran a nice piece on uh the insurance, uh, insure tech industry, kind of a primer on some of the stuff that's going on, especially around like uh, you know, the way these companies are trying to build these detailed customer profiles to uh, inform pricing and influence behavior, right? Make it hyper-personalized, super data-driven. Uh, and, and in this piece, they quote the uh, Vicky Wills, who's the chief technology officer at um, Zago, which is a, a UK-based insurtech startup that specializes in uh, vehicle insurance coverage for gig economy workers, right? And and this is something I've been seeing a lot in Australia and in Europe in particular, uh, you know, the UK, Europe, Australia, these insurtech startups that are coming out being like, we are focusing on... Ensuring uh, gig workers, right? Like that's like that. That's a that's an untapped market here. It's a new type of job that comes with a bunch of new types of risk, and you know, and all that. And so, so you know, they're focusing on on trying to take advantage of that market. But they had a great quote in this FT article from the CTO of Zago, where she said, "Quote." I think this is a trend we are actually going to see more and more. Insurance becoming more of a proactive risk management tool rather than the safety net that it has been before. And this really tells us about what they, what they want to do, right? They want to make it into this a, a proactive risk management tool. They want to, you know, do this data-driven predictive analytics at a hyper-personalized level. I remember, uh, and this comes, this goes as well to our, our conversation with Chris Gilliard about luxury surveillance. You've got companies like Progressive, which is a major automotive insurer in the mm-hmm. U.S., you know, that has for for a, you know many years now had this product they call Snapshot. Right, and it's uh, it's like a uh, a device that you plug into your car, um, and and other insurance uh, insurance like big you know legacy insurance uh, in, uh, companies have similar things like the UK uh, uh, automotive insurer Admiral has a com- has a product they call Black Box, which I mean it's just like the 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 text the subtext has <laughs> become text, <laughs> you know, just um, lean but- into it they are leaning into it but you know the snapshot the way you know these devices are meant to work is you plug it into your car and it monitors uh when where and how you're driving right like Mm -hmm. it monitors every time you do a hard break it monitors when you you know maybe you're driving through quote-unquote unsafe neighborhoods right maybe you're rough hoods, maybe you're driving at unsafe times, right? Like at night, you know, you're a shift worker, for example, who lives in the projects and, uh, oh, well, you know, know, uh, so, but they market these things as like luxury surveillance, right? This is about being like, isn't it unfair that you are paying for premiums, not based on your own behaviors, but based on the behaviors of a bunch of other people. So let us gather all this data about you And as Progressive put it in in a a white paper they had about snapshot, they can, you know, their goal is to start doing the statistics of one, right? Which is this idea that you gather so much data about one individual person that you can do statistic statistically significant analysis about one person, not about a population um, or an aggregate group, but about one person. And they market this as. You know, obviously all of their marketing around it is about like, you know, people finding surprise discounts, right? Like, oh, oh, my premium went down because I'm such a good driver. This is amazing, right? Or like, oh, this made my, you know, I had an accident, but because my snapshot or my black box was plugged in, you know, my claim was processed So easily and efficiently, you know, immediately, like, you know, because the insurer had all the information they needed. Like, you know, that's how they market this shit. But at the end of the day, this really is about doing, as the CTO put it, proactive risk management, right? It's about like punishing you for doing bad behavior while rewarding you and incentivizing you to do good behavior, which means, living a kind of life that an insurer wants you to live, you know, uh, being the kind of person that is a good subject of in, a, a good insurance subject.
0: I hate this shit so deeply. I really do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> from like,
0: from the deepest recesses of my soul, a blood curling scream emerges and erupts. This is a lot of, Especially with like recent lectures and interviews Morizov has been doing about how he thinks he was wrong about techno-solutionism. But he thinks he's trying to think of ways to explain that uh, the next iteration of tech development is to undermine any potential ideological challenger before it even emerges. And so sometimes that means undermining weird tenets of liberalism and undermining tenets that might lead to socialism because of how because you know political i feel like the political development of the west is uneven in that you know you have some institutions that are dif- definitively liberal and some that are a little bit more communitarian and could be and could spring into something or be the basis for something socialist but all that to say you know like insuretech every single time you've ever described it to me sounds like a group of people who sit in a room and think like how can we destroy Liberalism, but like the bad way, you know? <laughs> how can, how, you know, how human beings have obligations to one another, uh, in their in that uh, or outside of the, the nuclear family unit? How can we dissolve those and then reestablish them in commodified market transactions?
1: Mm-hmm. Anybody, how can we, how can we, ins- how can we make sure that the only obligations uh, each person has is to their insurer?
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, this is part of why I used to tell people
1: why uh, Masayoshi song was really bad shit
0: and SoftBank was dangerous if like it ever got its shit together, because it's like You know, when you listen to really closely what he's saying, what he's really saying is that he wants everything to be operating on, like, his company's platforms and investments and everything to be solved through an app and everything to be a commodity and everything to be a transaction and everything to be some sort of matching service, right? If you need a problem, you're not going to the state. You're going to the corporation. That is a a deeply uh, inhuman, anti-human vision of society. He'll Mm -hmm. never get it because the it turns out if you just throw lottery tickets at a crowd of people you know like sometimes nobody wins a fucking lottery and so no and and so he hasn't you know got lucky i mean he has got lucky but he, you know he hasn't found that mix of corporations he needs to really break the last vestiges of like regulation and law to get the super monopoly or maybe he will mm-hmm. but for now he doesn't
1: you know, you know what, what this sounds like to me as well yeah. is that uh, uh you remember our episodes on David Friedman's book The Machinery of Freedom, right? Yeah. This is the anarcho-capitalist <laughs> mindscape here, the libertarian mind palace of like what if instead of collective institutions everything was uh, run by insurance companies, right? Like that's what they this is what that vision looks like when it's would, actually materialized.
0: I would send mail. I would send mail if I lived in that sort of world
1: <laughs> <laughs> but on the insurtech tip and what i really want to get to in this project as as well is that like you know i, I think we need to have these criticisms of, you know, as, you know, in this FT piece, they had a really good quote from um, Mavis uh, Makirori, who's a senior researcher at the Ada Lovelace Institute. And, and, uh, and they said, you know, this approach to uh, in, insurance, um, and particularly talking about, like, you know, how, you know, uh, the consequences of using, like, health data um, to calculate insurance premiums, um, this researcher said, quote, you know, such an approach entrenches a view of health, not as human well-being and flourishing, but as something that is target-based and cost-driven. It's like, I mean, that is also what the insurance industry is and has been for a very long time as well, right? Like, like it's not entrenching it, it's just reproducing that. I think, though, and this gets to something that we talk about on TMK, about, like, the the, you know, the disconnect between the the marketing and the materiality right the the disconnect between their what they claim they can do and the reality of what they can actually do so you know i think that we we need to have these criticisms of what uh you know a hyper behavioral driven uh data driven you know behavior uh, type of insurance that aims to do proactive risk management and behavior modification. You know, we need need to have these criticisms of that model of insurance, but at the same time, I think we also need to have a really like clear understanding of the actual operations and outcomes of the insuretech industry as it exists and as it will exist in the in the in the near future of what they can actually do. Like I'm thinking here of uh, you know we need to be careful not to fall into the Zuboff trap. You know thinking again you know to reference another one of our uh, interviews with Day- with uh, Corey Doctorow right. And his criticism of of Zuboff surveillance capitalism really focusing on how Zuboff gives over way too much power to Facebook and Google and these companies, you know, saying that, oh, they act like puppet masters, right? That they're doing mind, they have the mind control ray, as Cory Doctorow put it, right? But they don't they don't have that power they don't have a mind control ray they're not puppet masters you know dominating our 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 behaviors and our lives um, in 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 a way that zuboff you know were you know, claims that they can and that these companies want us to believe that they can but we we won't actually know uh, what these companies can actually do until we really get behind closed doors until we really investigate empirically what they are really doing, how are they actually operating, right? Like, you know, go back to what we're talking about at the top of the show with, like, Lemonade, right? Like, they claim all this shit about predictive analytics and machine learning and AI. It's a fucking chatbot, right? It's yeah. a chatbot with some off-the-shelf facial recognition Honestly, software.
0: Honestly, it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny that they just have a chat box and they're like, enter our website where you get the most advanced artificial intelligence agent that the world has ever seen or some bullshit. And it's just like some shit that gives me an aneurysm on Xfinity.com, you know, (laughs) I I, I love that that's the future, that that's the cutting edge of like, of uh, where this tech is going and has gone
1: exactly exactly and and you know i want to give a shout out as well to the work of um liz mcfall who's an economic sociologist at uh university of edinburgh who you know so the the social science of insurtech is is a thin field it's it's an area that you know insurance in general has largely been overlooked and ignored by uh critical social scientific investigation for for whatever reason uh, there's just not a lot of work on it. And there's even less work on insure tech, right? It's a, you know, and I think that there's a, a reason for that is that insurance on one hand is held up as this like really mundane and boring thing, right? And mundane and boring things don't get attention. On the other hand, insurance has also done a really good job of mystifying itself, of being like, you know, these are arcane techniques, uh, you know, really complex calculations. You know, the, 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 it's so specialized that you can't possibly understand it unless you are in it, right? And I think that wards away a lot of uh, social scientists uh, from actually investigating what's really going on here. And Liz McFall, who uh, her she published a few papers on InsurTech last year that was really, really influential on my like grant application and my proposal and my outlining thinking about this where she's really trying to throw some cold water on these claims that both the companies and critics you know have about things like behavioral modification she's being like they they're not doing that they can't do that uh what they are doing is like using data analytics to for like marketing purposes right there which is important but they're using it for things like you know like the way that the finance industry uses it for like lead generation right like finding these these swaths of the market that they haven't penetrated yet. Finding people who are susceptible to having specific insurance products marketed to them so they can then capture that market share, right? But a lot of it is about marketing and advertising, right? It's not about behavioral modification or anything like that. It's where they want to go, but it's not where they're at. But I think if we only understand InsurTech through these companies' claims or the hyped up, cl- you know, and the hype, right? We we don't believe the hype, right? Don't believe the hype. The hype it hype, makes hype. me think of like Lee Vintzel's idea of critic hype, right? He's, he's, he's criticized critics for doing the Zuboff move of buying into these companies' claims without, ironically, without critically thinking about are these claims just bullshit, or are they right. actually real? Right. Um, and that—that's something that this project and the the grant money is going to really allow me to do is actually like, you know, penetrate the industry and the sector itself, get up, get in, get up in them guts, and 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 really understand what's going on uh, beyond the the credit hype.
0: Fuck that shit up! You're gonna, yeah. you're, gonna you're gonna be right there. I'm excited what is um, the timeline in terms of stuff that we'll be able to read and check out? I mean, well, not, not, not us. Cause I'm going to be bothering you for stuff behind the scenes, but the public. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, it's a three-year project. I won't be commencing the project uh, like officially until like mid-2022. So about another, you know, it'll be another year of lead time until I actually start the project. But I'm gonna start working on it kind of, you know, low-key, laying the groundwork for it. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting, you know, over the next few years or over the next couple years i'll be writing you know i'll be doing the research and i'll be writing you know academic articles magazine essays my goal is to get a ft op ed you know in the near future on insurance tech um that that's that's a big goal of mine so i can die happy
0: you're gonna do it it. i know it. because you know what's gonna happen they'll write some shit and then you'll you can go op-ed or the or the guest responses too, where they have the like, did you really not fuck with what we wrote last week? Respond.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, over the next couple of years, there's gonna be a, a nice steady trickle of of my research on the insure tech industry like All really right. starting to come out. Um, you know, we'll be talking about it on TMK as well, but you know the big capstone of it, um, and I promised to do it in my grant application, so I have to do it. <laughs> Is, uh, <laughs> in the in the third year of the project, I'm going to write a book on the insure tech industry. So, uh, so in the so next don't year-
0: sign any fucking other uh, book.
1: <laughs> book
0: deals <laughs> no more no more that's the one that's the one you're going with,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, there might be another book in the interim bef- between now and then, but uh huh. you know the big capstone of the project is uh uh in you know in in a few years that I'm gonna have a big, big kind of just monograph. You know, on pulling together this, you know, these years of research that I'll be doing on the insure tech sector as a kind of like the thing you can kind of bring in being like, you'll read this book and it tells you everything you need to know about the future of insurance, right? The the once and future, you know, uh, insurance industry. That's what people can have, uh, you know, be, be looking out for over, over these next few years. A steady, steady trickle of essays and articles and op-eds culminating in uh, what I hope is going to be a big, you know, blockbuster book.
0: It will be. We're going to be reading it. Hope all of you read it. Oh, yeah. You know, as well and follow along on this journey. You know, talking with you. You know, sharing stuff with you, reading your work has really opened my eyes to share tech as just like another front as one of like really important frontiers. This really poisonous and disgusting attempt by just private entities to turn human and social life into something nasty, Mm. you know, something that really um, needs to be opposed Pretty deeply, but also studied and understood. Because, like you said, there's just a dearth of there's not there's not much on it in the areas that we need to really understand. You know the effects that it has had, and the risk that are going to be emerging from all these new models, and the pressures that are causing new models to emerge, and all this and that. You know, which is why it's going to be really exciting to follow along with your work on this.
1: Thanks, fam. I'm 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 so I'm so pumped for this. You know, the last ten years has really been the heyday of of like you know, critical finance, right? Mm-hmm. People really being like, we need to understand the financial sector. Yeah. We need to really pay attention to this. It's crazy uh,
0: that they only did that like after the whole fucking thing <laughs> almost blew up.
1: They're like, oh,
0: we really almost, we really did almost lose the whole global financial system. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm really hoping to, uh, yeah, you we know, still can. <laughs> be riding the wave of, you know, if the last 10 years has been a focus on, on insurance and, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, focus on real estate over the last couple years as well, right? You know, but we forget the I in FIRE, right? It's the FIRE sector, right? Finance, insurance, mm-hmm. real estate. I'm really hoping to start, you know, riding this wave helping build the wave of a, of a, of a, of a new attention, um, on the insurance industry, right? Like, like we, we, we simply cannot afford to, um, Only pay attention to finance. Only pay attention to real estate, while while ignoring insurance. Right? Like, like we need to get in on this before the shit blows up. Right? Before you know we're trying to pick apart the 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 ashes. You know we need to get in on this before it reaches that point. And we can, and we will. We can, we will. I will.
0: (laughs) I believe that we we will win.
2: Did you guys see that uh, article about Zillow that uh, Vice dropped recently? In one of your, one of your cohorts over there at Vice Ed? I see it when I close my eyes at night. <laughs> and, like like me when you saw that article, did you like hit the nearest hard object and go, "God damn, I knew it! I fucking, I knew, fucking it. knew it!" I
0: knew yeah, it. I went into uh, I went into a trance. I went into battle meditation.
2: Uh, active, active accidentally activated
0: my fight response instead of flight. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's it's really frustrating. I think it's deeply frustrating because um, I mean, of course this is happening, but it's happening on so many overwhelmingly bad fronts and ways all at once that are like related but dis- but different. You know, like the Zillow and the apps is different than what is happening with like the massive uh, you know, investment firms that are buying up property and holding it and flipping it. But at the um, same time, it's still connected to it by the same sort of larger economic trends. And it just drives me insane <laughs> to think about, you know, gave up a long time on the idea of having a house and like, you know, uh, I, I decided that I'm going to, I'm down with like paying the mortgage on my dad's, I'm sure, or, or taking it, you know, although I don't really want to. And, um, you know, like, uh, I don't want it. I don't want, uh, it's like, it, it feels like such a poison pill. Right? Just at the heart of the, or at the core of American political economy, what if we created a whole political system at which people relied and were promised homes? And then we denied them the chances to do that because it was so reliably consistent that it became commodified and then the speculative asset, then a bubble emerged and then the bubble blew up. Blew up twice. And then, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's bad. This is so bad.
2: I have wanted to own a home. Like, I've had opportunities, and I'm just at the point now where it's, you know, it may never be a feasibility, especially where I'm at, because where I'm at, the market is just absolutely out of control. Are they doing the cash shit there, too? Because the oh, cash yeah. shit blows my mind. How are you walking into
0: uh, a stranger's office with Walter White money in the briefcase?
1: Ridiculous.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I just, you know, I don't imagine somebody in, in Tacoma coma, washington is walking around with like a million dollars in a suitcase just kind of usurping like home sales like no you know we see houses go for sale go on sale. like the house across the street from where i'm living right now is i'm i live in a rental but the house across the street from me the people moved out put their house up for sale it got sold later the next afternoon like there were already there were already there people there closing on it and it's set empty for four months now
1: oh my fucking god (laughs) yeah there's been a a increase of uh, uh some academic uh analysis of like the the single family rental home as a new asset class like i'm thinking of like you know, my friend Desiree Fields wrote about this a few years ago. Uh, the economic geographer Brett Christopher's just had a, a couple Jesus. academic articles oh, yeah. come out about this recently and the role of like these equity, like Blackstone, right? These like huge fucking massive private equity firms, you know, just turning single family rental homes into an asset class. Yeah. I mean, this, this, you know, Motherboard uh, Vice article that, that Jeremy brought up, you know, talking about how, you know, quote, to finance the growth, Zillow is borrowing $450 million through a bond deal to be able to buy and sell more homes, the first such deal of its kind. I mean, you know, they're just fucking buying that shit up. Yeah, turning it into an asset class and you got all these like, you know, these tech companies like Zillow or iBuyer or whatever coming in as these like, you know, these these middleman, you know, market makers, you know, being like, like what they're really doing here is they're buying up all of these homes like these, you know, these these tech companies uh, are buying up all these homes and then repackaging it and selling it to these private equity firms like Blackstone, right? So, so they're they're kind of stepping in and doing that middleman for these equity firms, right? So it's like Blackstone wants to buy, you know, they want to buy X number of homes in in Y region, and so instead of sending out, you know, having to go through the hard yards of sending out somebody to go do that and broker these deals, they can just go to a company like Zillow or iBuyer and be like, hey. This is how much money we have to spend, this is how many homes we want to buy, this is the region we want to mm-hmm. buy it in, and these mm-hmm. platforms are like, cool, got you fam like like all right. You know, it's like walking into a it's like walking into a home convenience store, right? And being and just like picking homes off the shelf and and filling up your 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 cart full of homes and then checking out, right? Like that's what they're, that's the kind of like, like market that they're trying to set up for these private equity firms, for BlackRock, for Blackstone, for all the fucking evil named, uh, private equity firms.
0: All the fucking, <laughs> uh, um, song of ice and fire, prehistoric evil Eldritch horror names that they like Blackstone and BlackRock feels like some primordial evil that just like, <laughs> yeah. we don't know anything about.
2: It sounds like some bootleg ass DC villains. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but then they got it. you know, mm, mm-hmm. which is a, which is a nice, friendly platform, of course.
1: I do want to. I, I do want to quickly say uh, in this grant application I wrote for the insuretech project, I got a line in there that says a case study of fire and ICT. Yes, that was my that was my pun on the song of uh, fire and ice. I <laughs> ice like <and> it. That's <laughs> like, good. I feel, I don't know, like if anybody picked up on that. If these like stodgy academics reviewing the grant picked up on it, but I felt fucking good about that. <laughs>
0: There's got to be someone on there. There's got to be someone a friend who did it.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's fucking it's wild times out there right now, folks. It is wild times out there in the uh, uh, the the fire industry is. Uh, well the the building is on fire <laughs> all right yeah. Um,
2: yeah not doing too hot
1: No, not doing too hot. We don't
2: need no water. Let the motherfucker burn.
1: Well, that's the problem is that motherfucker is going to burn and we're (laughs) all going to be trapped in it like triangle shirtwaist factory type shit where we're trying to run out of the the house on fire. But oh, shit, the doors have been padlocked.
0: (laughs) I mean, but that's why I mean, you have to understand. I've been telling you guys this. This is why Elon Musk is trying to get us to space, because the planet is doomed in the short term. But it's going to thrive in the long run. So if we get off now, select few of us and work for him for you know fifty, sixty years, we can afford a ticket back when things get better, you know. We, and we, then we can st- we can start the cult, we can start a compound, we can get our own fiefdom going, you know, before <laughs> they uh pot- before they shoot a mass driver at us from Mars, you know, it could be
2: we could have a good few years after the last few years. Ed, you sound like you, you just finished watching Elysium while wrapping up reading <laughs> The Expanse.
0: <laughs> They're always in my head. They're always just racing in my head. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to create an empire on the edge of space. That's what I'm going to do. Just like in... Uh, uh,
2: the Outer Planets Alliance or... Yeah, yeah the, OPA. OPA,
0: the OPA's alliance with Mars. Oh, spoiler. Never mind.
2: Ignore that. <laughs> I will but, cut uh, that out if they haven't read those books.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I've read all the books. so I know every single plot point. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I feel like anytime I speak about it, there's a spoiler warning. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is also um, the development of these technologies. Some part of me also wonders... I mean, probably not a cognizant or like concerted effort, but, it, you know, a lot of times the development, the the types of technologies that get developed, I mean, it probably just makes sense. Live in a controlled society, live in a society that's, that, that thrives on marginalization, on sacrifice, on on you know, and exploitation and extermination and all, you know, very violent forms of like dispossessing from one group and then protecting and sustaining another, um, that it just feels like all the all the money is going towards like the stuff that will really kick in once, like, the climate is such that if you spend an hour outside, you will have a heat stroke. Or once the climate is such that, like, every year, uh, large swaths of the country will be uninhabitable. Or if the climate is such that, like, all of the coastline, urban uh, metropolises are gone you know uh it really feels like all of the surveillance tech is sur- i mean not just surveillance tech but like after the world ends surveillance tech and not just like uh how do we make our workers and like uh, 3% better <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fire. <laughs> 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 Sometimes that's the only response you can have, just ah oh, fuck.
2: This is <laughs> the end
1: Here oh, we go again. there's that meme? Ah shit, here we go again.
2: I've say I've said this once and I'll say it again. Oh man, we're fucked. We're so f- fuck we have we
0: have a we have a window of opportunity to avoid a situation which i think would result in a permanent fucking but if we avoid it we'll be good we'll mm. Be good
1: so i'm trying to do here folks i'm trying to i'm trying to unfuck us before we're fucked all right right that's that's what that's that's the goal here
0: <laughs> and we support it that is the mission is one of the mission statements of tmk
2: <laughs> if my apocalyptic dreams were to come true, we have precisely 12 and a half years. So get your shit together, folks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there we go. All
1: right. Well, I think that's going to wrap us up. I think that's going to bring us to a close on this episode. So thank you for, for thank you, uh, our dear listeners and subscribers and Patreon comrades for indulging us we <laughs> <as, laughs> <laughs> <laughs> talk about uh, this this fucking project! I'm so hyped to to do to share with all y'all. Um, but also, you know, the, this the, these projects happen not with one person, but you know, amongst the team, right? Like, you know, I, I know I know as as I'm doing this research, being able to talk through it with the with with uh, Ed and Jeremy, being able to talk through it on TMK. Getting feedback from you, our dear listeners, is gonna be uh, just like so beneficial to 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 this project and to doing it. So yeah, you know, I'm I'm psyched to just fucking, you know, swim in the waters, immerse myself, live in, live amongst the muck of the insure tech industry for at least the next few years. Uh, we'll you know we'll we'll, we'll see how it goes. Goes, goes, goes. I want to thank everyone again for subscribing. Thank you for listening. We have Team K Sweeps Month has not come to a close yet. That's another thing. Could not have imagined. I mean, I'm I'm still totally floored. I got this grant to begin with, but for it to happen during Team K Sweeps Month, um, a week after I got Australian permanent residency as well. Mm-hmm. When it rains, it fucking pours. And, yes. You know, it, the it, stars
0: it, it, have fucking aligned this month.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah.
2: My boy's shaking gold. <laughs> mm.
1: Yep. That's right. That's right. I'm the golden goose over here. Uh, <laughs> so there we go. But Team K Sweets Month has not come to a close. In fact, we we have next week uh we will be hitting y'all with another. You know, we we just had that fucking killer uh, conversation interview with Taylor Lorenz
2: mm-hmm. next
1: week. We're gonna be hitting y'all with another killer conversation and discussion with Salome Villune and Meredith Whittaker. Um, you know, ta- talking about an essay that uh, uh, we we wrote together in Nature on um, how to why data must be a public good and how how to govern it as such, how to take it, rip it out of the clutches of private capital and put it in the institutions of the public good. Um, That's going to be a really, really fucking awesome conversation um, on a very important topic. So stick around for that. And uh, until then, later.